0: To the University of Delaware Center for Political Communication podcast. This podcast is part of the 2020 National Agenda Series, We Are the People, an examination of the citizens' role in politics and elections, from campaigns to the voting booth, and how people engage or do not engage in politics. I'm your host, Tom Byrne, News Director at Delaware Public Media. On this episode, we're joined by the UD Center for Political Communication Associate Director and National Agenda Series Director, Dr. Lindsay Hoffman. Thanks so much for being here once again. I'm so excited. And we are also joined by the CPC's research director, Dr. Paul Brewer. We appreciate you having you on board as well. Great to be back. A reminder, this is being recorded at 1 o'clock on Wednesday, March 4th. Yes, it's after Super Tuesday, but we still realize things could very much change between now and when you're listening to this podcast, so keep that in mind. Before we get rolling, Lindsay, I do want to start with you, though, and have you explain a little bit about what this next National Agenda Series, We Are the People, is going to be about here in 2020.
1: Sure. Well, we've done a uh, presidential election-themed national agenda since 2008. Um, Actually, even before then, Uh, before national agenda existed, uh, our founder, Ralph Begleiter, had done a course that was called The Road to the Presidency. And that's what it's been called every four years. And as I was talking with my CBC colleagues, we thought, do we want to focus on the candidates and the campaigns and the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff, or do we want to talk about the role that citizens play? Uh, because I think that we're seeing more and more people, uh, we saw it in, this, in Super Tuesday, um, getting involved and voting and being engaged in this process. So we really wanted to kind of take the focus away from the candidate and the process and how the sausage is made to what are citizens thinking? What are citizens doing? Um, how are they engaging with, as you said, uh, politics? Or how are they dis- finding a way to disengage from it? We're also going to follow the state of the 2020 presidential campaign uh, like we normally would. And of course, we're going to be hosting Delaware's uh, debates for U.S. House and congressional elections, as well as the gubernatorial election. So it's going to be a big year. And certainly
0: the focus on the citizens and what people are all about is uh, pretty appropriate considering what's happened over the last few days here in the presidential primary on the Democratic side of things. It has been a wild few days, and a lot of it has been because uh, there were a lot of presumptions made about what people were thinking and what people were going to do. And uh, those things kind of got upended in a big way. Uh, And Joe Biden, who appeared to be on life support heading into Saturday's South Carolina primary, came out of Super Tuesday with what appears to be a delegate lead. Um, Anybody here have whiplash over all this? I know my (laughs) neck hurts a little bit. How, How does this rank for you guys on the kind of improbable scale?
2: Yeah, well, primaries can be really fluid, partly because of how people think about them, because there's no party label to organize people's political loyalties. And so people's loyalties can change pretty quickly. And people are looking for signals, where should I be? And there's some pretty big signals over the past few days. Uh, but it, this one did evolve really rapidly. And Uh, To to keep with the theme, I think it's partly driven by voters' choices, especially if you look at South Carolina and the huge victory that Biden got there. That seems to have influenced what voters on Super Tuesday did. So you have voters kind of influencing voters in this process.
1: Well, and you think about uh, the pundits and everybody kind of going into South Carolina in the various debates. uh, He kept saying... I'm going to win South Carolina. He was confident. Biden was confident he was going to take it, but everyone's like, I don't know. And um, I think you're right that it's, I think it took uh, Clyburn's endorsement. I think that was uh, incredibly important. Um, And I think going off the theme again of of kind of focusing on voters is we're seeing voters of more diverse backgrounds coalescing around Biden that we haven't really seen before. So African-American voters, uh, suburban white voters, you know, groups of people that are are kind of deciding this is the person
2: that we want. Yeah, I know a lot has been talked about in terms of African-American voters being decisive in South Carolina. I think that's a really big part of the story. This was the first state that had a substantial percentage of African-American voters, and and they clearly preferred one candidate over the others. I think something that sometimes gets lost in this discussion is in the Democratic Party, a lot of white voters look to African-American voters because they're aware that African-American voters are historically important constituency, an important part of the Democratic Party coalition. And many white voters may be troubled by a potential nominee who doesn't have support from African American voters.
0: Well, that's certainly one thing that we appear to have learned from this, this brief snapshot in time. Is there anything else that, that you feel like this tells us about the Democratic Party electorate? One thing that, that strikes me is, you know, a lot of exit polls find support among Democrats for more progressive positions like Medicare for all, like generally speaking. But clearly they're not rallying to a candidate with that progressive agenda or a champion of that progressive agenda like Bernie Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren. I guess what, what's making me wondering, does do progressive candidates, at least right now, have a ceiling? Does Bernie Sanders simply just have a ceiling at this point? that he, Kind of like Trump four years ago, he has this really strong base. It's good, it, the numbers is just going to be there all the time. But when you talk about expanding it out, it doesn't seem to happen and the difference this time is unlike the republicans who never did kind of get behind somebody else the democrats have decided yeah we're not going to we're not going to play that same script
1: i think that's a really good point and i think it's important to remember that the number one quality that voters are looking for in their democratic nominee is their ability to beat trump and i think that um they're seeing Biden as a more and more viable case um, the further along we go. And like you said, I mean, this, it is really whiplash. If, if we were talking about this a week ago today or even three or four days ago today, <laughs> uh, we'd be in a very different conversation. Um, so I think um, the electability factor, while it's always an issue in a primary, it's really motivating Democrats right now is they want the person, not necessarily is going to bring Medicare for all. That's important to some of them, but overwhelmingly, they want to find the person who's going to beat Donald Trump in November.
2: Yeah, out to that, uh, I think it's really instructive and interesting to compare what's happened with the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. So the Republican Party has, over the past few years, essentially turned on some of its more establishment standard bearers. You, know, you look at Mitt Romney, you look at John McCain, you look at George W. Bush, and, and they're not people who the, the Republican, current Republican Party venerates or, or look, looks back toward. Uh, Trump has really pretty much taken, done a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. Whereas in the Democratic Party, you've had more progressive challengers, but if you look at look at Barack Obama, so he was the more progressive outsider, but he still worked within the system, and he was still friendly to the party establishment in a lot of ways, and got endorsements from key party figures such as Ted Kennedy mm-hmm. and Harry Reid. Uh, you see candidates who are more kind of it's us against the Democratic establishment, like Bernie Sanders, and in certain places, like uh, you know, pockets of the country, those kind of candidates can win. But there doesn't seem to be, at least in the present Democratic Party, an appetite for destroying the party establishment. You look at, you know, Barack Obama is still hugely popular among Democratic voters, and criticizing him does not win you points with most Democratic voters.
1: Well, you made a great point earlier. I don't mean to steal it from you. Maybe I'll I'll open it up so you can say it, which is like— what do you think is going to happen when you run against the establishment?
2: Yeah, the establishment is going to strike back. That's what happened over the past few days. So it, it, the Democratic establishment, you know, it it really didn't do anything for months and months, and that's that's what the Republican establishment did with Donald Trump's case. You know, they didn't coalesce around a viable candidate like. Marco Rubio, he, maybe he shot himself in the foot, maybe Chris Christie helped him off the ledge. <laughs> uh, and, you know, then it was left with Trump and Cruz, and Cruz was widely disliked within the party, so nobody was going to rally around him either, whereas Biden is very well liked within the party and has long relationships. So once he won South Carolina, and that was a s- signal to party leaders and to a lot of voters, okay, this is the alternative.
1: Well, particularly because it was so decisive. It wasn't even close.
0: Yeah, that seemed like that was, that was a big difference. I, I do want to just, as we kind of look at what's happened, talk a little bit about Mike Bloomberg. And he bet his candidacy on skipping the early states and banking on Super Tuesday. Based on how, how things worked out for Joe Biden, which is things didn't go well early, but they did right before Super Tuesday and in Super Tuesday, is it possible that Bloomberg had the right strategy? He was just the wrong candidate to execute it? And it winds up being that, that Biden's the guy who kind of threaded that needle
2: perfectly. I'm, I've heard some people speculate that I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. So you look at so Donald Trump was seen as a pretty non-traditional political campaigner back in 2016. But you know how he won? He competed in primaries and caucuses, and he won primaries and caucuses. You know, waiting around while the first four contests are settled doesn't really seem to me like it. People have tried it before. Rudy Giuliani tried it. It, it, it has not worked. It hasn't even come close to working. It didn't work for Bloomberg, and obviously he had some some very clear flaws as a candidate, which were. Dramatically exposed in in the first debate that he took part in.
1: I, I do a, wonder, though, if there's some sort of underlying. I don't mean to like add a conspiracy theory element to this, or you know, again, it's just speculation. Is that? I mean, he has said he will commit. He's already uh, endorsed Biden, but he said he will commit to um, funding Democrats all over uh, the country. Um, and Bernie has said he would not take that money. So we'll see what happens if Bernie ends up being the uh, nominee. But I mean, I wonder if Bloomberg had kind of a long game in mind that he wanted to bring attention to the fact that, look at me, I have a lot of money, and I'm going to give it to whoever's going to be the nominee. I don't know.
2: Uh, I don't think anyone could game this out. Yeah, I think but, you're right. But, but if, but if you know, so if Biden's plan was, you know, not do very well in Iowa and New Hampshire, <laughs> but, but count on Michael Bloomberg to suck up all the oxygen in the from debate. those states— yeah. Oh, and, really? and then you know, wait until just a few days before South Carolina to have his best debate, win South Carolina and slingshot into super. If that was his plan, I mean, you know, he, that's, yeah, that's a layer well, of right. subtlety. Well, that, all right. <laughs> I, I,
0: I, I'll, I'll try to, to, to recast my question in this regard. Is I, I don't think anybody planned it that way, but I, I, I think we have heard a lot of talk about whether or not um, Iowa and New Hampshire really hold the same kind of relevance and importance as they used to have. Uh, and maybe 4 years from now it's a different it's a different playing field because of the way things have worked out I this time I hope so
1: I hope so I think that um you know we've always been made aware of like wow Iowa and New Hampshire aren't really like a lot of the rest of the country but I think given the problems that happened in Iowa party leaders are going to be like mm, maybe we should rethink all of this but at the same time I always say that <laughs> and I I think
2: there's going to be will to do it this so? time I think a combination of the caucuses. I think there's, there's a sentiment against caucuses now. and mm-hmm. They're almost completely done away with last time. Iowa and Nevada are two of the only holdovers. I think you'll see an end to the caucus system. And I think Iowa's not producing a clear kind of candidate out of it, and all the technical problems. I think sure. that, that really damages their case for being first in the country going forward. And I, I, I personally think that's a good
0: thing. I just want to finish on on one thing with with the Bloomberg candidacy, and and I guess kind of along with it, the Tom Steyer candidacy. Does this kind of massive flame out by Mike Bloomberg, and to a lesser extent, Tom Steyer's inability to get any kind of traction whatsoever, tell us anything about these kind of billionaire campaigns? Is is the lesson here that money is important in politics, but only as long as there isn't one guy trying to buy the election for himself?
1: I don't know. I I mean, I've I've been studying this a lot this morning, kind of as we're leading into the podcast. And you know, you think about several things that are important for a campaign historically: money, um, and money became incredibly more more important as campaign finance laws have changed. Um, So, money, to me, looking at my research a decade ago, or you know, looking at research from twenty years ago, I would think that money would be increasingly the most important factor in these campaigns. And so, this is kind of like. As a researcher, like kind of an exciting anomaly, like whoa, it didn't work. Um, and the thing that, in addition to money, we think about organization on the ground, organization. Biden had none of that. Biden didn't have that. So what it really came down to was was um, was last minute mobil- voter mobilization um, and kind of vitalizing, revitalizing the voters' support for this candidate. So, um, as again, as a researcher, I always like to find patterns and be able to explain things. But it's also kind of exciting when. Wow, that didn't go as I planned as I thought it would go at all. Well,
0: I think the interesting thing maybe to see is does Mike Bloomberg's money have more oomph with him using it for Joe Biden right, or that's for Bernie kind of what, Sanders. That's
1: kind of what I was saying earlier, is like that maybe maybe people will appreciate the money, like you said, when it's not just me s- buying self-serving. It for me. <laughs> I
2: would say money matters, but it matters the most in the lowest profile situation. So let's look, so Delaware has a Senate primary going on. Uh, Chris Coons against uh, Jessica Skirin. Scaring, yeah. Yes. And so, uh, you know, most Delawareans know who Chris Coons is. Mm-hmm. Most Delawareans don't know who Skirin is. If she has the resources to publicize her campaign, that makes her much more competitive with Coons. If you look back at 2016 with Donald Trump, Trump didn't really spend that much money. But who he, knew he campaign, was? Because everybody knew who he was. Biden, maybe he didn't need to spend as much money either. Now, Bloomberg, fairly well known. Obviously, he could boost a lot of name recognition. Think back to Ross Perot. He spent a lot of money. He got about 20% of the vote in 1992, which is pretty impressive for a third-party candidate. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to spend that money, you have to have a message that resonates with the audience as well. And Perot, to some extent, you know, his message resonated with people who were alienated from the political process. Bloomberg seemed to, but only as long as there wasn't a familiar alternative who seemed viable. And once Biden became viable, you know, the market for Bloomberg just vanished. So
0: do we feel like this is, this is it? Or is there yet another plot twist waiting in the woods somewhere?
1: I can't even, I'm not even going to go there. I have no idea. (laughs) I thought going into last night, I was pretty, uh, the night of uh, the Super Tuesday, that I was relatively sure of what was going to happen. And, um, you know, it's, it's vastly different. So I think I think that's something that's exciting for the American public. And again, if we're thinking about voters and, and citizens, um, I think a lot of times citizens are becoming very skeptical about the process kind of occurring without their input, that it's, again, this establishment process where only the political leaders are cha- making any change. And I think, if anything, the results of uh, these elections over the past few days might give vo- voters, at least on the Democratic side, some notice that, they actually do have a say. They can make a difference in a pretty big way that defies what the pundits expect. I mean, Frank Bruni uh, admitted in the New York Times that he he was wrong. He said, I, I can't believe it, but I was totally wrong. And we're having a lot of people going back and saying that today.
0: So having kind of winnowed this down to what appears to be a two-person race, can the, the VP sweepstakes be very far behind is is it time to start thinking, well, okay, if it is Biden, what does he need? If it's Bernie Sanders, what does he need to kind of complete the picture?
2: Yeah, I would, I would, I'll start with Biden, but I think some of this applies to Sanders as well. I think, uh, you know, you look back about half a year ago, and it seemed like Elizabeth Warren – was in an excellent position to win the primary. So so she had, you know, well-developed policy positions. She was not a burn-it-down-to-the-ground kind of candidate like Sanders, but she was a progressive alternative to more moderate candidates like Biden and Klobuchar and then later Bloomberg. And for lots of reasons, which we can talk about, I think uh, uh, sexism is, is a big potential factor here. Uh, Warren's campaign never really took off and you know she has not dropped out she's still in the race so I don't want to write her ob- obituary prematurely but she has not won a contest yet so it's a pretty rough situation sure uh, I think you look back to 2018 the kind of the year the woman for Democratic candidates and it's a party that's majority women and where voters of color play a huge role and Sanders and Biden are both older white men I think either one of them is going to be under intense pressure, and rightfully so, to pick a running mate who makes the ticket look more like the party does. And I think I think Biden is kind of a, a strategic inside player, and I, I, I would be shocked if he does not pick a woman as his running mate. And I, I'd be actually kind of surprised if he doesn't pick a woman of color as his running
0: mate. So we're thinking like a Kamala Harris, a Stacey Abrams, those type of people.
1: Those are definitely people that I've been thinking about as well as possible strategic picks. But if you look at uh, Sanders' support um, in all of these uh, exit polls and these um, these early primaries, um, he has far less support from women than Um, men—six, seven, eight percent differences. Um, And the only place that that wasn't an issue, there wasn't a gender gap, was in Vermont, which is of course his home state. So I think Paul has a great point that um, that. Given the kind of context of the Me Too movement combined with this wave of young women coming into the House and um, Congress in 2018, uh, I think that that's going to be a key demographic for whoever is the nominee to, to reach out to.
2: I think Biden has given hints that that's the direction he would go. He's talked about a number of potential running mates. He's mentioned Stacey Abrams. He's mentioned Kamala Harris. I think he's mentioned Sally Yates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he recently pledged to nominate an African-American woman to the Supreme Court. So clearly, these considerations are on his mind.
0: It'll be interesting to watch as the primary season moves forward. I do want to talk a little bit about some local things as well. Um, Delaware's GOP recently announcing it does actually have candidates for all statewide races already. Uh, they are, at this point, largely unknown names. Uh, but in your opinion, how how crucial is it for the GOP to have a top of the ticket in place this early rather than scrambling, which they have in the last couple of election cycles to kind of, okay, we need someone to run for insurance commissioner. We need someone to run for treasurer and sometimes even trying someone and then not working out and then having to swap somebody out. I mean, they already face kind of disadvantages registration wise. It seems like this is probably a good start for them to do whatever they're going to get done.
2: Yeah, I would say I would say that's that's a very logical strategy. You know, you think back to Howard Dean and his 50-state strategy for the Democrats. Uh, The idea there being that compete everywhere, because if you don't have strong, credible candidates, you know, in a lot of situations, you know that they're going to lose, but you never know when the political tide is going to turn, when there's going to be a wave election. And if you have credible candidates there, then they can benefit from a big shift in favor of your party. If you don't have credible candidates, then they're going to lose. And if you look at who the Republicans have been putting up, even for big statewide offices... You know, I'll I'll mention some names: Rose Izzo, mm-hmm. uh, Scott Walker. We'll
0: talk about him in a second.
2: Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, and then the who was their Senate nominee last time? I'm I'm blanking on his name. Oh gosh, now you're making me blank on his name as well, which, 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 is which says which, 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 which <laughs> says everything you need to for, say, which proves the point. But these these were not credible candidates, and they got blown out. And even if their their they Democratic opponent who was the heavy favorite, say something, say there'd been a big scandal, or say there'd been a big shift in the national political environment. They still would have lost because they weren't credible candidates.
0: I do want to talk about Scott Walker for a second, because one of the candidates that is going forward with the GOP is Lee Murphy, who is trying again for that state, uh, the state's U.S. House seat, the lone state U.S. House seat. Uh, He famously lost to Scott Walker in the primary last time. Apparently he's not going to see Scott Walker again this time because he's back to being a Democrat and says he may challenge Chris Coons in a primary on the Democratic side. Um, And while Murphy is is probably not likely to unseat Lisa Blunt Rochester, the incumbent Democrat, how important is it for the GOP not just to have these candidates in place, but not to have another Scott Walker situation, which so much of the oxygen got sucked up with them having to disavow the guy who was on their ticket (laughs) to make sure that people didn't think that, you know, he was kind of like their
2: guy
1: yeah I mean you need you need to have your your constituents rally around the party. They need to feel confident that the party's got their stuff together, that they're um, they're finding viable candidates, even though it's a blue state. and even though people might Reelect these two um, Democrats, but um, I think that they're doing the right thing by saying, "Okay, we're, we've got our, we've got it together here now. We've got these really important candidates." Um, I did want to go back to Scareen for just a minute. Yeah, um, what about this? I was going to go okay. there anyway. there so, all right, well,
0: well, so, well, so let me let me say this because you brought it up earlier, Paul, and um, you know Chris Koontz does have this Democratic challenger, at least one for now, and, and Jessica Scareen. She's been very active early on, very active on Twitter, very active canvassing getting a much earlier start than Kerry Evelyn Harris did, who was the progressive challenger to Tom Carper in 2018, and who, who got a, a fair amount of attention both locally and nationally. Um, I guess the question I have, and, and you can kind of take it wherever you want to, Lindsay, but given what we're seeing in the presidential race, and some of the things we talked about earlier about, you know, someone like Bernie Sanders as a progressive having a ceiling, and the potential of a Biden nomination, and the kind of impact that might have in Delaware, are these kind of all limiting factors for a progressive insurgent candidate in this particular cycle?
1: That's a really interesting question. That wasn't what I was going to get at, but I think that um, I'll get to what I was getting oh, at after. I, I, I want to hear but that. I think that um, you know, uh, Delaware politics. I mean, these pol- these, these establishment p- politicians are very well connected to each other. So I would think that Chris Coons would have kind of an upper hand in in a Biden. Uh, nomination but what I was going to say about um, scorrain is that one thing she's doing that I think is really quite smart is she's reaching out to disenfranchised voters people mm-hmm. who have um, have been off the voter registration lists have somehow been convicted or some other reason they have have had their um, or perceived that their voting rights were taken away and that is a really incredible way of getting people who simply weren't voting before. Um, so, you know, it's Delaware. I don't know how many of those people exist, but that seems to be, in these early days, her strategy is really reaching people who just have been disenfranchised.
2: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a tough road for an anti-establishment Democratic challenger uh, partly because, you know, the, the Democratic Party establishment is very strong in Delaware. You look at people like Carper, you look at Coons, you look at Carney, and they've been around. They've kind of traded hats, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's tough to break in there. You know, Lisa Blunt, Rochester is a relatively new person, but she also comes from a well-connected political family. Right. Uh, and you see people like Bryant Townsend or Carrie Evelyn Harris, and they can get support. There is a core uh, group of progressive voters, but you might... If you look at Harris's campaign, it's still two to one. And getting a third of the vote against a popular incumbent like Carper is is not a trivial accomplishment, I think. But it's also pretty far from getting the nomination. Skarin is starting earlier. She seems to be pretty well-resourced for a challenger. I've already gotten a flyer from her campaign on my door. Mm -hmm. I noticed it's very much focused on these progressive kind of values and messages, Medicare for all, Green New Deal. And I don't know if those are messages that can get you above the 50% mark in Delaware. They'll certainly get you maybe a third of Delawareans. Let's say Biden wins the Democratic nomination. On the other hand, maybe there's more appetite to take a risk with the Senate nominee who's less traditional. I don't know. I don't know how how that might play out. But it'll be interesting to see. I think she's going to have some clear issue differences uh, with Coons that— will get air during the campaign.
1: Well, and you mentioned this kind of, like, switching of hats among these kind of three main players. There could be potentially a desire among Delawareans for change, and we'll certainly do our uh, Delaware polling in the fall, um, and maybe we'll measure that and see what, what people are looking for.
2: And there are there are upsets. You know, you look at uh, on a more local level, uh, uh, the uh, Newcastle County executive race from a couple sure. of years mm-hmm. back yep. where Matt Meyer pulled off what was defeating Tom Gordon yep and and, and yeah. we've
0: seen a couple of legislative races go that way as well like long time incumbents you know being kind of pushed out for you know a, a more progressive candidate, at least perceived progressive candidates so it is something to keep an eye on and we'll try to do so here on this podcast i want to finish up as we always do with our political quick take your hot quick take quick hot take whatever you have on your mind we want to hear about it right now who wants to go first
1: I can go first. All right. um, I you know, kind of keeping on this this theme of women and the role of women in uh, just the past couple of you know sets of elections. I found this. I thought it was really fascinating that not too long ago um, in February, the uh, female um, clothing provider MM M- Lafleur uh, announced that they were going to uh, provide women with clothing. Um, because they've said a lot of women can't afford to buy the kinds of clothes that people expect of candidates. Um, And she said the founder, Sarah LaFleur, said, if it's in any way a hurdle for these women, it brings me such joy that we can help alleviate that problem. I thought this was a really fascinating move from from a corporation to kind of put themselves in the race this way, to get good publicity for themselves, to help female candidates who traditionally struggle with uh, image. Um, We know this from Hillary Clinton's pantsuits to Mm -hmm. – Sarah Palin's uh, long, high-heeled boots that she would wear, women candidates, no matter what they're wearing, are being evaluated for the type of thing that they're wearing. Um, In fact, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, shortly after she was elected in 2018, tweeted, If I walked into Congress wearing a sack, they would laugh and take a picture of my backside. If I walk in with my best sail rack clothes, they laugh and take a picture of my bad side. Uh, dark hates light. That's why you tune it out. Um, so it's. I think it's. Women face a different sort of struggle. And I think what was most amazing, that sort of demonstrates not only kind of this company's commitment to uh, women and um, dressing them professionally, was the number of female candidates that responded. I think it was it was quadruple what they had an anticipated. Mm. Um, hundreds of women have reached out to this company. So uh, given that you know our first female congressperson. Uh, was elected just over 100 years ago, Jeanette Rankin. Um, we know that media coverage paid so much attention to her appearance, um, and there had to be, they actually, the Washington Post, uh, published a story with the headline, Congressman Rankin, real girl, likes nice gowns and tidy hair. And the article was meant to basically quash speculations that she dressed like a man. So women have been dealing with this for a very long time, and I think this is a really valiant effort um, by a company to to really help women who might not have considered themselves viable candidates before. It's
2: fascinating. And yeah. I kind of, for my quick take, I want to circle back to something that, that we touched on earlier, and that is the potential role of sexism in the 2020 Democratic nomination race. And to come back to Warren, and you, know, you, you, could, you could apply some of the same uh, issues to Amy Klobuchar as well. Uh, I, I think... Warren was subject to some media coverage and some comments from supporters of other candidates that, that were very gendered in nature. And, you know, I realized how, how tough an environment was for Warren when I was talking to, I won't mention specifically who, but it was a relative of mine, a woman in her 70s who's a lifelong Democrat, politically liberal, and said, you know, Warren, I like, I like Pete Buttigieg, but, you know, Warren, she seems kind of shrill to me. And that's, you know, a joke within uh, the political science community is that Warren is every political scientist's favorite candidate. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of disappointment uh, that not, not as many people voted for her. And I think it's prompting a lot of discussion and, and will continue about how in 2020, women candidates are often still held to double standards and higher standards than their male
1: counterparts. So, yeah, put all of her skills and background and positions into a man's body. Do you see that that, like, is it clear to you that that would make a big difference?
2: Yeah, you know, Klobuchar, uh sort of brought this up when she was arguing with uh, Pete Buttigieg in one of, one of the debates. Yeah, And they kind of famously didn't really get along. <laughs> uh, one, of, one of my favorite jokes was that, when, uh, when Bi- they're both going to endorse Biden at that Texas rally that Biden would unveil that this is actually going to be a stage ca- cage match between Klobuchar <laughs> and, and Buttigieg and, and Klobuchar just kind of grins and says, finally.
1: Yeah. <laughs> See, I heard that the, the way that they are going to deal with it is because they're both from the Midwest. They're just going to pretend like it never happened in ignore <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it
0: Well, I, w- I will finish with, with my, my my quick take and that is simply this. Is, this is a very journalistic-centric thing. A lot of people talked about, you know, Biden didn't have any money, didn't have any organization, so he relied on earned media. Mm -hmm. Can we just call it what it is? It's news coverage. It's (laughs) journalists doing their jobs. That's a very good point. It's earned media. It is news coverage. That's all i got to say about that. Dr. (laughs) Lindsey Hoffman, UD Center for Political Communication, Associate Director, National Agenda Series Director. Thank you for your time on the podcast.
1: Thank you. And
0: UD Center for Political Communication Research Director, Dr. Paul Brewer. It was good having you here for this episode of the podcast. Thank you. One quick note, we do want to congratulate the Center for Political Communication as it celebrates its 10th anniversary. It's going to mark that occasion Monday, March 9th, with the an event that will also feature the announcement of the winners of the latest Speak Up audio essay contest. You will want to check out those winners at cpc.udel.edu after the event. And Delaware Public Media will air the top three on its weekly show, The Green, Friday, March 13th. That is all for this podcast. I'm Delaware Public Media News Director Tom Byrne. We'll see you again next time on the University of Delaware Center for Political Communication Podcast. Thanks for listening to this edition of the University of Delaware Center for Political Communication podcast, produced by the UD Center for Political Communication and Delaware Public Media. For more information on the University of Delaware's Center for Political Communication and the We Are the People National Agenda Series this fall, visit cpc.udel.edu.